You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Greg Banner, a 1979 graduate of the U.S. Military Academy and a career Special Forces officer. Greg's not going to talk to us about Iraq or Afghanistan. Greg's not going to talk to us about Desert Storm or Panama or any of those events. Instead, we're going to look back to the 1990s and talk about his experience as a company commander in Bosnia. Greg, welcome to The Spear. Thank you very much. Great to be with everybody. Can you give us a sense of, you know, what brought you to the Military Academy? What brought you into Special Forces? Um, I, I had been always interested in the military. My dad was Air Force career, a career NCO. Uh, when my eyes started changing just a little bit in high school, I, I had to look in other directions than being a pilot and pretty quickly landed on being in the Army. And this was Vietnam time frame. And so that's what was in the news and I could see on TV. And uh, frankly, like you, you hear so many times, the movie The Green Berets came out with John Wayne. And, you know, you get motivated by those things. And I kind of set my sight on the Army, Infantry and Special Forces, you know, late in high school and uh, pretty much tracked that direction. Went to West Point, did as much as I could, did the light infantry thing. Uh, as my first option out of West Point, uh, touring the 82nd, a couple other infantry things. But then, yeah, I got into SF. And then once it was created as a branch, I picked it and uh, did that pretty much the rest of my career. What did that career look like to bring you into company command as an SF leader? Well, the, because I was in the transition time period, it was different than it is now. So I went at Fort Bragg, we had a thing called the 2 plus 2 program where a lot of infantry lieutenants and some from other branches too, but they spent two years typically in the conventional side, the 82nd or elsewhere, and then they volunteered for SF. And because they were right there at Bragg, they could go to the school and uh, go to typically the local, the 5th and 7th groups were right there. So that's what I did. Uh, I had a line platoon and a tow platoon in the 82nd. And then I went over to SF, landed in 5th group. And because generally a shortage of officers, I, I was there as a first lieutenant, I got a team and I was a team leader for two years there in fifth group. I had a, a free fall team, a halo team, um, which was good. I was still young, still learning. So I did that, went to the advanced course, uh, did a tour in Alaska, 
came back to Bragg, got I'll say stuck. I was at that point still infantry looking for infantry command. I got stuck at Corps for like 18 months. I was the S3 of the Corps headquarters battalion. Got down to the 82nd, was an S1 waiting to get a company, and the SF branch happened, was created. And I had like one shot to either pick it or not. And I went ahead and picked SF, got very, very lucky, switched places with a guy that wanted to stay infantry. I went to 7th Group, and I got another team for another two years. Uh, which was as a captain, you know, a lot more senior, a lot more mature in many ways. And so that was, I mean, that was just a great thing to be able to happen to me. And then from there, uh, I went off to uh, a secondary assignment in Germany as a civil affairs officer, got pulled from that quickly, not quickly, maybe a year and a half, uh, and ended up in El Salvador with the mill group El Salvador. Uh, did a tour there as a senior advisor in one of the zones, commanding general staff college, and then Fort Devens company command in uh, SF. When you arrived at Fort Devens, you've been through intermediate education, you've had two ODAs. What was going through your head in that formation when they were about to hand you the guide on? Uh, It's where I wanted to be. Uh, Even though I had been in fifth and seventh groups and been oriented towards other parts of the world, I had a strong affinity towards 10th group. I had languages for 10th group in Europe. Uh, and absolutely that's, you know, that's where I wanted to be in the world, uh, the right place, the right unit and the right job there at, at, at 10th group. I had been somewhat chasing, I think, uh, the real things going on in the world. Fifth group, I got to go to the Middle East and do some things. Seventh group, we were doing a lot of stuff down in South Central America. And of course my, my tour in El Salvador was a wartime tour and there was this, this this Bosnia thing was kicking up and we saw that that was going to get active. And so, again, being in 10th group, being focused in that part of the world, I kind of had an expectation that, you know, that we would get involved there. And that was kind of one of the, the uh, biggest things going for the country at that time. So I was real happy with that, too. What sort of information or guidance did you have about the likelihood of a Bosnian deployment for you? I'm not sure the timing when I found out, you know, we were talking to our next assignment when I was at Leavenworth at finishing up CGSC. I I think I'm pretty sure I knew uh, I was going into company command. Uh, I had been talking to my my future uh, battalion commander. I'm not sure when I knew that I was going to do the next Bosnia rotation. So, I, yeah, I, I really don't remember. I, I am pretty sure that I must have known before I got there because uh, almost as soon as I took command, we were heading over. For listeners who might not be so familiar with America's involvement in the Balkans, can you give us the one-minute summary of what your mission was and what America's purpose was? Uh, Yugoslavia uh, had come apart uh, after the death of Tito, who had kept it together, a bunch of varied ethnic groups since World War II. Once he died, they basically fell apart into a variety of civil wars uh, with, with various groups with you know, their strengths and assets and size. Uh, and, and there was some, some terrible bloodletting, some massacres. And what had happened was uh, NATO had decided, I'm tr- actually, I'm trying to think if it was NATO or the U.S. unilaterally with allies, yeah, I don't, I don't, maybe it wasn't under a NATO flag, but it was the U.S., Britain, Italy was involved. A couple of the main countries decided that they weren't going to stand by and stand for 
some of the blatant outrages that were happening within the former Yugoslavia areas. Mostly Serbia had been committing massacres and, you know, ethnic cleansing and those kind of things were going on. So they started an active air campaign. They decided to support with air power and they were taking down Serbian targets, uh, doing live missions, uh, flying aircraft into Serbia. And that had started... Yeah, so I got to Devon's that summer of 93, and I guess it started just barely before, like, you know, in the spring of 93. Um, so when I got to Devon's in my mission, I was actually only the second rotation. Uh, what we were doing, the, the exact mission I got sent for was uh, the combat search and rescue mission for those aircraft that were flying into the former Yugoslavia area. So what they did was they established a joint task force uh, based out of... Uh, former Air Force uh, Intel station in San Vito, Italy, on the southeast corner. And the aircraft used Brindisi Airfield in Italy. Uh, and they had the 352nd Special Operations Group out of the UK provided uh, MH-53 helicopters. We had AC-130 gunships, uh, MC-130 and HC-130 uh, aircraft to support the mission. And we had an SF Army SF company we had a SEAL platoon, and then you had the whole Air Force package, which for ground people included the PJs and the combat controllers, and then you had all the aviators. So that's what that's what we did, and the, the first team went in there, um, and I don't remember, I, it would have been 10th group, but I forget which unit, which company it was, and then uh, I went in on the second rotation. I was the next group to go in on that mission, and it was a, a three-month deployment. In your workups to go do this mission in Bosnia, did you have an opportunity to practice either operating in mountainous terrain or to do, you know, practice CSAR type missions? Or was it grab your bags, let's go, we'll sort it out on the ground? I don't think there was a lot of prep. Uh, maybe, maybe we didn't know that far ahead of time. And I don't know what the company had done before I got there. I just don't remember. But from my own timeline, I, I you know, I got to the company uh, again, after getting out of command and general staff college, uh, and we were deployed within maybe two or three weeks. You'd mentioned your tour in Germany doing civil affairs. This wasn't your first experience in the region. Had you worked with Special Operations Command Europe, the SOCUR planners before? No, I had not. Uh, my tour was, uh, it was a civil affairs tour with the 21st TACOM, which is the Theater Support Command for Europe. So it was a conventional civil affairs assignment. It really didn't involve uh, SOCUR at all. And no, and I hadn't had no former links with them at all. When you landed in Italy, what were your thoughts? What were the risks you were willing to take, the assumptions you'd made, and how accurate did that prove to be? Uh, the rotational system we had, I think we had about a week handoff once we got on the ground. And so really it was absorbing from the company that was there and the other elements that were there absorbing the way they had set up to do the mission. Uh, they had been, you know, groundbreaking, basically uh, starting the mission up. And so we just wanted to get everything that they could feed us in terms of what their plans were, how they were organized. It was a very, it was a very Air Force centric mission anyway. You know, our part of it was just to ride the helicopters and then be available in case anything 
had to happen on the ground. And I, I got to throw in too, though, it wasn't just the combat search and rescue. We also were doing planning for a quote unquote other contingencies, which was mostly thinking about evacuating the U.S. Embassy out of Sarajevo. If that needed to happen, we, we dabbled in that, but that would have been a really hard thing to do. And we really didn't get to the point where we could have executed that well, but we did do that. But as far as the CSAR thing go, yeah, it was just it was just taking the handoff and, and getting our head into the game. And then we did some, uh, right off the bat, we did some organizational changes. Like, for example, the, the there was on the base, there was a huge complex, which was the the core of what was the Intel Center that used to be there when the Air Force ran it. They had been shutting down that complex and there was just a vestige of an Air Force uh, base operations group that was managing the place. And this classified facility was pretty much empty. And so the, the joint task force that I was part of moved in there. And when I got there, uh, we were in the middle of, of moving into that facility rather than previously we'd been kind of operating out of the barracks and out of other buildings. So what did the battle rhythm look like for your company? Um, we, we had to establish that. We had to figure out the, the, the rotation that had been uh, set up. So mostly, uh, and, and the way special operations aviation works, you know, they tend to fly at night is their, is their preference by far. And so that was the focus was to be able to do night missions. Um, I had, I believe, four teams with me, four 12-man A teams, 10 to 12 people on a team at the time based on manning. Um, and the way that the, the organization was set up, if we had flown a, a combat search and rescue package, we would have had supporting aircraft, the, the C-130s, various C-130s, but then two MH-53 helicopters would have flown in. And on those helicopters, the way the mission was organized, we had four of my Army guys on one aircraft with two Air Force, one PJ, one combat controller, the other aircraft had four Navy Special Warfare and the same Air Force, one PJ, one combat controllers. So that was four plus two is six on each aircraft. Those 12 people were the ground component on the aircraft in case something needed to happen on the ground. Uh, and that's that, you know, so, so yeah, we had to figure out a training schedule. We had access to Italian ranges and training areas. Uh, we set up a rotation whatever, I divided up the, the three-month mission that we were going to have in terms of which teams were going to be on call when, and that was all part of it, of establishing how we were going to operate. This is six, seven years after the passage of the Goldwater-Nichols Act, which kind of codified a lot of the joint concepts in the United States military. From your perspective as a company commander on the ground, how well was that in place? Yeah, uh, the U.S. military had a, a history, an unfortunate history of lack of cooperation, and kind of the highlight of that was the attempt to rescue the hostages in, in uh, Iran. That kind of brought to the forefront some problems in uh, joint operations. And so that got Congress involved. They created Goldwater's Nickel. And, and what that did was it pushed jointness onto the military uh, formally, you know, requirements for joint assignments, uh, creation of these joint headquarters, and in that joint special operations commands, every component 
uh, regional component around the world had a special operations component. So in Europe, it was SOCUR, Special Operations Command Europe. And, and in many ways, from my perspective, at least, you know, jointness became its own goal. Let's make things joint just because it looks good. It's the shiny object. And, uh, and as, you know, I, I can continue to talk about, it created problems on the ground because we were doing things that weren't necessarily making sense. They were joint. They looked pretty. They looked good on paper. But me being deployed to doing a, a live mission, pretty much as soon as I got there, I, I saw some things that really to me, were non-functional and were dangerous and were going to hurt my people if we actually had to employ. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't perfect. I think well-intended, uh, and it has created some incredible results in terms of being able to, to function better uh, and use all of our services to their best assets, but definitely some growing pains. You mentioned some of the things that stuck out to you. What were they? Yeah, so the, the organization, the biggest was the organization that I just described, our, our mission package. Four Army on one aircraft, four Navy on the other aircraft. You know, that package was, it put people theoretically on the ground who never worked together. So if that package had launched any particular night and all those people needed to get off the aircraft, you would have, between both aircraft, you'd have four Army, four Navy, and four Air Force. And we never trained together. Even even while we were there, we didn't have the ability to force it. And because of the rotations between those three different elements, we weren't a, a single set package that we could put together, stay together, train together to, to even figure out each other's communications, each other's gear, SOPs, that kind of a thing. But that is the, the package that was created by our headquarters for this mission. They said, do it this way. This makes sense. This looks good. We want everybody playing, and and that's the way they created it. And uh, I started objecting strongly once I saw that. I, I, I just again, I thought it was a, a recipe for disaster. I thought it made no sense in terms of of creating a tactical force. You know, and certainly another another piece out there that you have to watch about is this whole concept of oh, we're special operations. You know, we're that good. We can we can break the rules. Well, you can't. You have you have to be you know being good means you got to do things right and you got to organize right and think right uh, and we weren't so I, I started calling people I started calling the soccer of course the local I was working there in in Italy my immediate hire was the Joint Task Force Commander who was an Air Force 06 uh, and he didn't know this ground stuff I mean I think he understood what I was saying but I kind of got a head nod and like you know that's what we were told to do so yeah just do it but. I started calling the Sockier people. The Sockier J3 uh, was very upset that I would bring up the subject. And I, not long after that, and I don't know if it was a coincidence or not, my battalion commander decided to come for a visit, <laughs> see how we were doing. And I, I, I don't know, it was in the back of my head. Maybe he's coming here to relieve me and tell me to, you know, that I'm, I'm mouthing off too much. Uh, but I told him the same thing, and and he saw it too. And he's a smart guy, Mike Kirshner, wonderful leader, wonderful uh, SF guy. Um, I think seventy three, maybe class seventy three, somewhere in there. But uh, what we finally ended up doing was uh, maybe a month into it, uh, the Sakir commander was coming down, and a new Sakir J three was coming down also, and he came like a day early. 
So as soon as he got there, I hit him up with this. And, and he probably had a heads up too, but I, I tried to lay out in, in plain language what I thought the problem was and what the solution was. And uh, yeah, he got it. And then when the soccer commander showed up, you know, we had a briefing. I mentioned this briefly and he said, yeah, okay, do it that way. And they changed it right there on the spot. And that's what it took to happen. It took a month of being, you know, being on call for the mission in a pretty messed up manner and, and me pushing and talking and finally enough people, I think, saw the reality of how poorly it was organized and, and they agreed to change it. But that's what it took. The general and the J3 have come down. They've made this decision. And now you are operating in a SEAL week and a Green Beret week and a SEAL week and a Green Beret week. What other elements to make the task force joint happened? And what sort of friction did you encounter? So the, uh, as I explained earlier, the, the idea of this jointness and joint policy, joint doctrine was still fairly new across Department of Defense. Um, but there was doctrine. There were some basic principles that followed, you know, basic principles of war and military principles. Uh, and one of those was, you know, organization. And that's what a lot of this joint business was about. At the, at the theater level, you have a, a joint Special Operations Command, and, and they manage, control everything under them. And you have one commander. You know, you don't have a Navy commander, an Army commander, an Air Force commander. So down at our level, at this kind of a mission, this actual employment, um, we had the, the Air, an Air Force 06 was the task force commander. Air Force, you know, Air Component Command was an issue because they were all out of the 352nd, out of the U.K., but as far as my area went, the ground element, so we had my company, we had a SEAL platoon, about half the size of my company, and then we had the Air Force guys, the pararescue guys and the combat controllers. Uh, but they never set up a ground component commander. You know, again, my my uh, rotation was a second rotation, and I maybe, you know, I just hadn't gotten to it yet, or I don't know why, but... Uh, there were objections to even the concept, though, of of having a ground component commander. Of course, myself as as an 04, I was the senior guy in that group. The Navy had an 03 and the Air Force had a 02 or 03. Um, so it could be seen as self-serving, but I thought it was a basic organizational need in order to have a ground component commander. And even with the the success in changing the way the mission was organized, we had possible contingency missions. We could have done something else. We needed to cooperate in training. We needed to talk about, you know, we didn't want to completely switch out the way we would do things one week with the Army guys, another week in the Navy guys. So, hey, let's get together and talk jointly about how this mission should go and how the Air Force relates to us and those kind of things. So I, I thought there was a lot of things that could have been done better, but I could not get anybody to agree to the idea of a ground component commander. The Navy just, I, I think in particular, objected strongly to the concept of being underneath, quote unquote. And I, I, I didn't intend to tell them how to do their business and set up their training schedule and those kind of things. But, but I thought there were definitely some organizational things we could have done better. Uh, and their, their commander, who at the time was, I, I think they had an 05 in Europe uh, in charge of the Navy Special Warfare. And he came down to visit and I got in a long somewhat heated discussion with him about the need for ground component commander. And, you know, his final thing was, well, what if I'm here assigned, then who's going to do it? And I said, well, you would be, you'd be the senior guy. As long as somebody's doing it, that'd be fine with me. But, and that 
you know, that didn't stem the stem the argument. So it never happened. We, we end up cooperating better, I think, because of a lot of these questions and maybe some of their eyes were open, but but it never got formally changed, which and I don't know if it ever did in part of the mission. It was just one of those unfortunate, too hard to do things. But still, that would have been the right way to operate. And I'm hoping they ended up doing things like that. You know, these latest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but I really have no idea. Looking back 30 years after the events in Bosnia and after the events in Italy, what sort of takeaways did you have for the rest of your career? I think as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate what I've thought was a pretty good run in understanding organizational management for doing hard missions, doing dangerous things. Uh, My current job, I ended up in emergency management after I got out of the Army, and, and I see a lot of the same challenges in terms of organizing very complex groups of varied people. So I, uh, I very much, you know, I, I look back and I, I, I see in my own career progression a better understanding as I went along of ways to organize principles absolute principles. And if you violate principles, you're, you're dealing with, you know, you're looking at failures for a variety of reasons. And, and those principles, like I was just describing with ground component commander uh, over varied elements, if you violate that as a principle, you know, you're going into dangerous ground. And, and I think, you know, that is a really good thing for leaders and, and managers and management is not a dirty word. You know, there's a lot of management skills that are very much essential and very much beneficial to doing this dangerous work. It's organizational management. And, and some things are smart. Some things are, you know, they, they give you better results. And some things are just not that good and dangerous. So I'm uh, and, and I'm still looking at that. I'm still interested in that as a as a topic, you know, my various times in combat environments and and other places and then doing the work that I do now. Uh, doing emergency management in the U.S., uh, I, I see opportunities all the time to do better, to organize better for success. As you're advocating for a joint ground force commander amongst the special operations community, and you know that you're meeting resistance, was there a point where you said, oh, screw it, I'm just going to let this happen? Or did you know that you had the moral and the operationally relevant high ground? The latter. Absolutely. I, I was, you, you know, in my journey, in my career, I had, I was very conscious of my early limitations and, and what I learned as I went through being a light infantry platoon leader, one team, a second team, you know, El Salvador, various deployments, assignments. And I, I was at a point in my career and in my development where I I knew right from wrong. I mean, I had absolutely no doubt in my mind what, you know, the tactical situation could be and what the problem was. And and so with that, I, and, 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 you know, you got to watch about, you know, being conceited and, you know, going in the wrong direction. And maybe that's the point of your question is, is whether I had any self doubt, but at that point on that issue, I did not. And, and so I was willing to push it, as far as I had to. And I, I guess if I had been relieved and told to go home, I would have 
done, you know, that, that would have been the end of me, but I, I would have felt like I had still done the right thing and pushed in the right direction when I had to. While you're making these briefs and coming to these conclusions and, and doing this advocacy, what was your interaction like with either your first sergeant or your, or your team leaders? Uh, com- company sergeant major. That's what we have in SF. So I had a, a, a an E nine company sergeant major. You know, very experienced. I think this was mostly my battle. You know, they they had their heads into, you know, handling it and doing it as well as they can. And they were doing a lot of training. You know, you talk about the the pre training. Well, we were really doing it hard once we were there on site. So uh, we got time with the helicopters. We were doing fast roping. We were we were trying to get on the ground and and. Uh, work with the, both the Navy guys and the Air Force guys, although there wasn't a lot of that. It was mostly unilateral training, which, again, kind of highlights what the problem was if we had actually gone on a live deployment together uh, because we were all on our own schedules. We, we, there was no organization at the level of the ground component, which was another one of my battles and fights was I thought somebody should be in charge of that packet, all those elements. So, uh, yeah, we... Uh, you know, we were just training and they were, I, I think they had their heads into, you know, into doing the best they could with what they had. And this was my fight. Once the decision was made, what shifted in your day-to-day life? Yeah. So the, the basic decision was, you know, we shift rotations. Uh, I think we did maybe one or two week rotations where uh, Army had the mission at one point, and the Navy had a mission at the other. We always had the Air Force, the combat controller, and the PJ. Uh, the Air Force absolutely uh, insisted on that for their own reasons. Uh, but to have Army guys on both air- aircraft or Navy guys, at least we had a, a team. And from my perspective, that was ideal for my detachments because two four-person elements, you know, they could easily fill from a single detachment. So these are guys that all knew each other. They worked. They had been working with each other forever. They had done a lot of stuff together, and so right off the bat, you've got Camo, you've got SOPs. You know, everybody knows each other, and you're not going to have any problems once you hit the ground. Um, so yeah, so we just went into that rotation, uh, and then the people that weren't on the on-call status, the other teams, again, they were doing their their training on their own, doing this, the same training for the same mission, but not on the on-call status. As this is all playing out the war in Bosnia is still occurring. What did you sense was going to shift in your mission or, you know, what shifted in your life as the war continued? Yeah, as best as I can remember. uh, So the air war had just started before I went on this mission and it probably went on, boy, at least another two years, maybe uh, before that ended and NATO ground forces in a peacekeeping role went in. So, from my perspective, when this mission was going on for me, you know, we were we were doing live air missions in country. You know, they were bombing. They were trying to uh, reduce the Serbian military capability. And I think that was our reality. And I didn't see much, you know, that was coming up that was going to be different because it had just started when I got there. In the three months you were there, did you launch on an active mission? No, uh, we... Uh, Nothing, nothing happened while I was there, uh, and I think only through the whole course of the mission, as best as I can remember, there were only maybe three incidents that happened. I know there's a French. Well, I ended up my next assignment after I left Devons. I was at Sakhir in Germany, kind of oddly enough. Uh, so I went up there as a, an assignment, and my first thing there was 
I ended up in Naples as our liaison to AF South headquarters or NATO Southern headquarters in Naples. And while I was there, we had both uh, French aircraft went down and no, maybe that was it while I was there on that mission. So we had a French aircraft go down and then U.S. lost a stealth fighter at one point and an F-16 at one point. But yeah, that was after I had been doing the search and rescue piece. The transition from company command up to the Sakir staff, who you had been previously engaged in a little bit of a pitched battle with, what was that like? Uh, yeah, there was nobody there when I got there that remembered any of that history. The, the, the new J-3 who had come in, who had come down to visit me, uh, I think he was actually already gone by then, too. And, and there was a new Sakir commander. So, yeah, I think there was no history. And it was a very logical follow-on. So I did, uh, I think I did like 15 months company command. And, and by the way, I ended up doing almost the same mission at the end of my company command for Iraq. So I, I went to uh, Inserlik Air Station in Turkey, and we were still doing northern Iraq, uh, northern watch and provide comfort too with the Kurds in northern Iraq. And so I was there for another three-month mission doing search and rescue again, very, very different environment, but kind of the same mission and some of the same principles. Uh, and then I went to be an XO, uh, battalion XO for a while. And then, then I got to Sakir in uh, 95. What was it like commanding and knowing you were sending, you know, these, these young men off into these dangerous circumstances if, if something had happened? Yeah, that's why I took it seriously. And, and I think, course you you get promoted and that's part of our world is promotions and new assignments and new not adventures but uh, doing things at a different level but I I think a, a from my perspective anyway to have my heart still on a team on an SF team and to remember what it was like being on a team I, I think is absolutely fundamental to hire leadership to not get to a level where you don't think about what things are like for them. And that was my interest in this battle that I described is, you know, knowing that if they were on the ground, I, I didn't want to put them there uh, if I could do anything at all to improve their chances for success and things like that. Um, but there were glimmers of me actually, you know, might be deployed. Like if we had, to the degree we talked about the other contingency missions in Bosnia or the contingency missions in Iraq, uh, I could very well have taken several teams and, and gone in as a tactical leader. Um, so that was a part of both missions to some degree. The decision gets made. We're going to do Green Beret Week and Seal Week and Green Beret Week and Seal Week, as opposed to everybody has a chance to go every night. What was the reception of that like with the other elements of the special operations community there in Italy? Uh, I think that none of them had been involved in this fight in order to make the decision. I think they were, for various reasons, maybe they didn't have the same view that I did of the problems involved. I, I'm not quite sure, but uh, I think once it happened, I think it was just another change in, in the operational environment. And they just rolled with, OK, we're going to do it this way now and, and adjusted to it. And that was fine. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for your thoughts on, on leadership and on management uh, using the case study of a special operations task force uh, for the Bosnian crisis. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Uh, best of luck to everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. 
The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.